0: Well, grab your Bibles, if you have them, and open up to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be in Ephesians 6 this morning, and we're going to be finishing up the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 6, verses 21 to 24. One of the things I love about a good courtroom drama, whether it's a movie or a television show, is I love the scene that is the closing argument, the defense and the prosecution, both the lawyers, they try to make their final pitch to the jury and they summarize the evidence and they make their final case to those who will decide the, uh, the, the case and the decision. Now, depending on the particular case that is before them, there could be hours and hours of testimony and evidence that have been given over the course of many, many days and sometimes even weeks. And all of that has been presented, and yet everything comes down to those few moments when each side will make their concluding arguments. The closing argument is a time to pull everything together, to focus on what has been the most significant part of the evidence and of the trial. Conclusions matter. Conclusions matter in court cases, but they matter in things beyond court cases, in other areas of life as well. And they matter in particular in Paul's letters. Now, I'm not saying that in this last section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians that he's making a concluding argument like a lawyer would, but the point I'm making is that these last few verses matter. We can be tempted to skip over these because they seem sort of uh, secondary, to what he's doing, and they're not really a part of the main argument. So we typically don't pay attention to these things, but I want to tell you this morning that what Paul does here in these concluding verses is significant. He tends to close his letters by focusing on core concerns, on things that actually do matter in the life of the church, and this letter and these concluding verses are no exception to that. Now, any time that someone focuses on core concerns and sort of brings an argument to a conclusion, it's particularly helpful for us. It's so easy in church ministry, in every area of life, but in particular in church ministry, it's easy to get distracted and to think about a number of different areas rather than to focus on the core concerns that we have as a church. And so I think... Spending our time this morning in these concluding verses and focusing on the core concerns that Paul has will be helpful to us as we move forward in ministry here at Woodhaven Bible Church. So what are the main things that Paul focuses on here? That's what I want to share with you this morning. This morning in Ephesians 6, 21 to 24, we're going to see two core ministry concerns for Christians Two core ministry concerns for Christians. And this is where we're going to end up today in the book of Ephesians. The first one of these you can see in verses 21 and 22 is personal relationships. This is the first core ministry concern. Now, if you're familiar with Paul's letters, you know that at the end of his letters, he typically tends to mention people by name. He goes through specific names. I mean, there's almost a whole chapter of this at the end of his letter to the Romans. And a lot of times it's easy for us to skip over these almost like laundry lists of names because we don't know who most of them are. We don't have any personal connection to them. And so we don't find them that helpful or that significant. But when Paul does this and talks about specific people At the end of these letters, or any point in these letters, it's on purpose. And one of the things that this tells us is that Paul has a concern for personal relationships and for individual people in ministry. We need to be reminded of the vital significance of people and of personal relationships in the life of the church. Look at verse 21. So that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. Now, one of the reasons that Paul mentions so many people throughout his letters, and this guy Tychicus here by name, is because he surrounds himself with those who can learn from him and those people who he can invest in and he can develop in ministry. And this Guy Tychicus is one of those people. Look how Paul describes him here. He is a faithful or a beloved brother and a faithful minister in the Lord. This is not the only time that this guy Tychicus shows up in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 20, you don't have to turn there and it won't be on the screen, but in Acts 20 and verse 4, a significant passage for Paul, Tychicus is accompanying him on his journey. This guy's also mentioned in 2 Timothy and in Titus. And he's one of the people who is with Paul. He's involved in ministry with him. And he's one of the people that Paul sends out to check on churches. I mean, you can't send an email during this time. You can't make a phone call. And so you have to send people out to check on how churches are doing and to get information about churches. And Tychicus is faithful and beloved And so Paul sends him out to do this sort of work. And then he brings information back to Paul. Notice what Paul says at the end of verse 21 here. He's a beloved brother, a faithful minister in the Lord, and he will tell you everything. And so this guy Tychicus would have been with Paul in Rome, and he would have carried this letter from Rome to Ephesus. They didn't have a mail system that was available for any person to use. The mail during this time was only to be used for official empire business from the emperor or other key leaders in in the empire, the Roman Empire. And so the average person to get a letter to someone else would have had to send it by the hand of an associate or a friend. And if you know anything about the geography here, I had to look this up, but Rome is 800 miles from Ephesus. He would have had to cross the Mediterranean Sea to get over to Ephesus to to make the shortest route of this. And so this was quite a journey that he would have taken here to deliver this letter to the church at Ephesus. And so he would have carried this letter and Paul knew he could count on him. He was a faithful and beloved brother. And he would have given them the letter. And then in verse 22, Paul gives us two main reasons that Tychicus came with the letter to the church at Ephesus. Look there. I have sent him to you for this very purpose. And here are those two purposes. That you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So first of all, Paul wants the church at Ephesus to know how he is. He's sending them information about him. He cares for them. He's been involved with them. And he knows that they care for him. There's a relationship there. And information is hard to come by. And so when Tychicus shows up to the church at Ephesus, he's supposed to tell them everything that is happening with Paul. And no doubt he would have gathered information about them as well. But there's a second reason that Paul wants Tychicus to come to them, and this may be the most significant. Look again at verse 22 that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. So Paul wants them to know about him, but he also wants the Ephesian church to be encouraged. Now, we need to focus on this aspect of what Tychicus was doing and this important part of ministry. We'll miss this if we skip over this final section, if we sort of skim through these last verses in the book of Ephesians. But this is not the only time that this word encouragement has been used in the New Testament to talk about a major focus of Christian ministry. I want to make a statement to you. I'm going to say it a couple times, and then I'm going to try to prove to you from the New Testament the statement that I'm making, all right? Here's the statement. Biblical Christian service depends on actively and intentionally encouraging one another. Let me say it again so you can make sure you get this. Biblical Christian service depends on actively and intentionally encouraging one another. So let me flip it on the opposite and and say it negatively. You are not engaging in true Christian service and ministry if you are not intentionally encouraging other believers. The word that's translated encourage here, this word saturates the New Testament. It is everywhere, and it's translated all sorts of different ways. There's some key ideas to it, though, that I want you to know. It means to comfort someone, to exhort someone, to appeal to someone, to request something of someone. So to encourage is to come alongside another person to strengthen that other person, to build them up for the task that is at hand. To encourage someone is to affirm in them what is good, to say, I see that Christ is working in your heart and you are demonstrating this character quality and I want to strengthen you and encourage you to continue to put that on display. In many ways, you can summarize our personal ministry to one another with this word, encourage. Let me show you how deeply embedded this word and this idea is in the New Testament and specifically when it talks about ministry. Listen to a few passages from the book of Acts. Acts 14, verses 21 and 22. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, here's our word, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. This is a summary of ministry here. What are they doing? They're strengthening the disciples. They're encouraging the disciples. They're building them up. Continue in the faith. Another chapter over, Acts 15. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. One chapter over, Acts 16. You see, I don't have to go all over the place. It is everywhere. Acts 16, church at Philippi. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Acts chapter 20. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia over and over again, in the space of just a few chapters describing ministry, you can see here, this is a primary goal. Oftentimes, this is one of the last things that Paul and his associates do before they leave a church. They try to encourage them. It's that important. They're trying to build up these believers, to affirm them, and to strengthen them. Let me say it this way. Football players run and tackle Doctors heal people, teachers give instructions, and Christians encourage other Christians. This is what we do. Listen to a couple more passages. 1 Thessalonians 2. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you, there's our word, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. 1 Thessalonians 5, therefore, unless you think this is only a pastoral thing or an apostle thing, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is everywhere. Maybe you've never seen this before. But if you're honest this morning, and if I'm honest, I struggle with this. I need to grow in this area. And I don't think most Christians walk into church on Sunday trying to be intentionally discouraging to others, but we just don't think about it. We don't think about how we can be actively encouraging to others. We don't think this is a requirement for believers, and this is the lifeblood of relationships in the church. This is so vital to ministry. One author said it this way, alert affirmation requires vigilance. Alert affirmation requires vigilance. It's like when, as a parent or a grandparent, when that child is getting ready to take his or her first steps, you are alert to that. You love that kid. They're special to you. And so you're focused on the child and you're focused on the positive gains that that kid is making in attempting to take his or her first steps. You are alert to affirm. You're vigilant. You're looking to encourage that child to take his or her first step. You're sitting on the, I remember doing this with Caitlin in our little house in California. We were sitting on the edge of our seat, Bethany on one side of the room, me on the other, literally sitting on the edge of our seat going, you can do it. Come on. You can take your first step. That is exactly how Paul views Christian ministry, encouragement. We are to sit on the edge of our seat with one another and look for positive gains and encourage one another and give exhortation and affirmation and comfort as we see those things happen. This means that we are watchful, we're vigilant for ways that people are demonstrating Christ-like character. And when we see it, we don't just make a mental note of it, but we go ahead and we open our mouths and we say words and we speak affirmation to that fellow believer and we encourage them. Now, we're not talking here about trying to build up someone's self-esteem through cliches or platitudes. What we're talking about here is watchful care for another person's soul, concerned for them. We want to see them grow. We want to see them change. And so we're, we're encouraging that. I mean, what would Woodhaven Bible Church be like If we became people who are defined by encouragement, I think two things would happen. First of all, we would help one another to persevere and to grow through continual affirmation and encouragement. I mean, you want the person who's down the road from you to stop pursuing sin and to start growing in spiritual maturity? The best way to do that is to urge and exhort and to encourage any signs of Christ-likeness that you see in them. It'll help others. One author who wrote about affirmation and encouragement, a whole book on it, said this, Affirmation energizes people. It not only lifts their spirits, but motivates them to action affirmation not only points toward character already being demonstrated, but it fosters more of the same. If we want one another to grow, to grow in maturity and to grow in Christ's likeness maybe the best thing we can do is to affirm what we're seeing in one another, to encourage one another toward this end. The second thing that I think would happen, though, is It'll change you as a person when you start actively looking for ways to affirm and encourage others. When you begin to look out away from yourself and look to others and try to find ways that you're seeing others growing, then your demeanor changes. It changes you stop looking at yourself and turn your attention to the good that God is doing in others, then your whole outlook on life and ministry changes. So what do we look for? What are we saying here? What well, can be all sorts of things? It may be something as simple as a kind act of service. It may be someone using their God-given ability for God's honor and praise. It may be someone who is putting forward the effort to be like Christ. Yeah, they're struggling, they're not perfect, but man, you see them putting that effort forward. Encourage that, foster that. It could be all sorts of things. Someone genuinely caring for his or her family. Someone showing courage. Someone making wise decisions. Working hard. Demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. Any of those areas are things that we should be encouraging, building up, and affirming. Now here's the kind of the bottom line question that I asked myself as I was racked with conviction this week about this, and I have been. Here's the question. Do I believe that God is at work in those around me? Am I the only one who God's at working in? Or do I actually think that God is at work in everyone else around me? Is God, by his Holy Spirit, growing people? Then why don't I see it? Probably because I'm not looking. Probably because I'm not interested in it. Most of us are walking through the Detroit Institute of Arts with blindfolds on. And then we're complaining that the artwork is not any good. Take the blindfold off. Look and affirm the work that God is doing in others. That's exactly what Paul wanted Tychicus to do here when he got to Ephesus. This was a primary goal for Tychicus's ministry among them. Encourage them, build them up, urge and exhort them. And all of that fits within Paul's core concern of personal relationships. He's all about people here. He wants people to grow and change. But there's another core concern that fits with personal relationships and this is in verses 23 and 24. We have personal relationships and then Paul is concerned about positional realities. Now we've spent so much time in our study of the book of Ephesians talking about these positional realities. I mean this is the whole structure of the book, right? You have chapters 1 through 3 that give us the objective realities, the benefits that we have in Christ. It's our whole series name. Recall those benefits in chapters 1 to 3 and then react to those benefits in chapters 4 to 6. I mean, the book virtually or literally starts this way. Chapter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then Paul goes on to enumerate those blessings, to tell them, tell us what they are. Those are positional realities. And then, when we know those positional realities, we will react to those benefits By walking differently, chapter 4 and verse 1. In fact, this is our word for encourage here. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge or encourage you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So that's the structure of the book of Ephesians. But then you get to these last verses here in verses 23 and 24, and Paul is going to go back again and remind us of three positional realities. These are benefits that we have because of our union with Christ. Now, this is very normal for Paul in his letters. We don't have time to do this right now, but if you were to go back and look at all of Paul's 13 letters in the New Testament and just look at the first couple verses and the last couple verses, it's amazing how often he mentions grace, love, and peace. He uses those words over and over again. And the reason he does that is because these are core benefits that you and I have because of our union with Christ. But when he closes a letter by wishing for grace or wishing for peace for people, he's not asking God to bestow grace for the very first time. He's not saying here, you don't have peace and I hope you get it. It's not what he's doing. He knows that those who are in Christ already have peace and they already have received grace. But he closes this way Essentially by praying that we would experience these positional benefits more and more. He doesn't want us to stay where we are. He wants you and I to have a deeper experiential knowledge of these benefits. So let's look specifically at what he says here. Verse 23. Peace be to the brothers. You say brothers and sisters here. He's not only speaking to men. Peace. This is a positional benefit that we've heard a lot about in the book of Ephesians. If you go back to chapter 2 and verse 14, you don't have to look there, but just remind you of that. Chapter 2 and verse 14, Jesus is our peace. We have peace with God because of Jesus and the work that he did. In chapter 2 and verse 15, Jesus makes peace between Jews and Gentiles. They were once hostile to each other. And now, through Christ, they are reconciled to one another and formed into one new man. In chapter 2 and verse 17, Jesus preaches peace to both Jews and Gentiles. In chapter 4 and verse 3, Paul says that we demonstrate our new walk in Christ by walking in peace, by pursuing peace with one another. In chapter 6 and verse 15, we have the gospel of peace. The gospel proclaims peace with God to us and brings peace to our relationship with one another. And so you can see the dynamic here. There's no doubt we've objectively received peace with God and our relationships are no longer at enmity with one another. But that objective peace longs to be felt and experienced and cultivated in our daily lives In the church. And that's what Paul wants here. He wants you to experience the reconciliation that you have with God afresh every single day. And he wants you to live out the peace that you have with one another every single day. There's a second positional reality in verse 23. Look there again Peace be to the brothers and love with faith. So this is our love for God, and that is accompanied by faith. Love always goes with faith. We love God through faith because we believe that he is. We believe the words that he's given to us. So our love for him grows. Now both of these positional realities, peace and love, are gifts from God. Look at verse 23. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Both of these benefits flow to us as gifts from God. And Paul wants us to experience these gifts more and more. There's a final positional reality here in verse 24, and this is the most common one that Paul mentions. I think almost every single one of his epistles begins with the words, grace to you, And here he ends by talking about grace, verse 24. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So you can see here that, or in verse 23, you can see that love comes from God and here Paul prays that grace would come to those who love God unceasingly. So love is a gift from God and Paul prays that we would experience grace more and more as our love for God Grows. Love and grace go together, don't they? Love sprouts naturally in the heart of one who has experienced grace. When you've received unmerited favor from God, the response is love to Him. That love is a gift of grace. And so Paul longs here for believers to be swallowed up into a greater experience of love and a greater experience of grace. Their love will grow as they're more and more aware of God's grace. And so these two work in tandem in the life of a believer. But it's interesting here in verse 24, he says that grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible or unceasing. And what he's saying here is he's reminding us that our love will continue for God beyond death. Our love will continue, and he's reminding us of that, and he's exhorting us to persevere in our love for Christ. And so this fits very well with what has happened in the letter. We're told of the benefits we have. We've been assured throughout this letter of our love, or of God's love for us, and of the grace that he's given to us. And now he wants us to experience that and continue to grow in that love and experience of grace. And this is a fitting way to end this letter. I mean, it makes sense here. We're confident in the grace and love that God has shown to us. He spent the whole letter doing this, ensuring us of God's love and grace for us. And this benediction is prayed so that we would continue to grow in that grace and love. I mean, it's, it's very similar to what he prayed in chapter 3 and verse 17 through, through verse 19. basic, immature believer this morning knows of God's love. But the most experienced believer, the most mature believer, hasn't even begun to plumb the depths of his love for us. And so that's what Paul is praying here, that we would continue to grow in that love no matter where you are. So this is Paul's closing argument. He takes us back to these core concerns, people and positional realities, benefits that we have. And I'll be honest, I would love for these core concerns to be what dominates the ministry here at WBC. We're all about people and we're all about these theological truths that grow people. It's amazing how often we get worked up and concerned about things that don't fall into either one of these categories. They don't help people. They don't advance these positional realities. I mean, how much time and effort do we spend on other things when our primary focus, the heart of our ministry here for each one of us should be seeing people flesh and blood, real people that have names that we know, seeing one another be encouraged and built up and grown to be like Christ through the grace that they've received from Christ. Encouraged with these positional realities so that real people grow to look like Jesus. I know we're in the midst of a, a funny time here where you guys are all sitting at home And we're here at the church building, and I'm exhorting you about building one another up and personal relationships and all of that. But while we're in this time of separation, will you pray with me? Will you make this a focus of our our prayer times? That when we get back together, that our ministry will be simplified. Because we've had a chance to think about these core concerns and assess this in our own lives. And our ministry will be simplified where our heart's desire is to think about the grace we've received and to encourage one another in the grace that they've received and that they're growing in. That's what truly matters and that's what we're here to do. And so I pray that that will become the focus more and more of the ministry here at WBC. And I think we'd be amazed at what God would do as that happens. Let's pray. Father, we desperately need your help. Uh, Our natural inclination is not to be an encouragement to one another. It's to be nitpicky, to be negative, to see all the wrong that people are doing. I know it's mine, Lord but I pray that you would change our perspective of church life this morning. Lord, help us to remember the grace and the love that we have received from you, the peace that we have in Christ. I pray that those positional realities would would dominate our thinking. And then I pray that as we have opportunity that we would actively and intentionally point out grace in the lives of others, that we would encourage one another, that we would build one another up. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a completely new perspective on ministry, that the aim of Paul and his associates as they went from church to church, as Paul sent Tychicus to Ephesus, as ministry happened in the book of Acts and in the New Testament, I pray that that focus of encouragement and exhortation and comfort would become ours. I pray that we would be a New Testament church in this sense, Lord. And then I pray that, they would, that you would use that focus in our lives, individually and corporately, so that we would better reflect you. Thank you for the work that you're doing in our midst, and I pray that you would continue. In Christ's name we pray, amen.